0: We'll be in Isaiah 38 today. Now, have you ever heard the phrase, when it rains, it pours? Heard that before? It's typically used in the sense that when bad things happen, it seems like a lot of things that are bad happen. You get hit with everything at once. But interestingly, that's not the origin of that phrase. Growing up, I remember the blue Morton salt container with the little girl uh, in the rain with an umbrella. And she's holding a tub of salt and you can see it just pouring out behind her. And it said, when it rains, it pours. And as a kid, I didn't understand what that meant. But Morton salt became wildly popular around, it was the early 1900s in the States because they put an additive in the salt so that it would pour freely even in damp conditions. So when it rains, it still pours. It pours. So that's what it came from but it's changed today where we say well when it rains it pours i mean when there's a bad thing that happens man you're gonna get sick your your dog's gonna be sick as well or something's gonna be robbed from you or whatever so it was to sell superior salt so today we read of King Hezekiah, God heard his prayer, extended his life, and as a king he had no shortage of bad news. He could say with a common vernacular, when it rains it pours, because the Assyrians had come in, he was stricken with this illness, and was told he was going to die, that, hey, get your house in order, you are going to die, and it broke him all the things that were happening, and this is just a fraction of what was going on in his life and in his kingdom. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we cope when life seems to be throwing everything at us? It's not just one thing, but it's a series of things, and we don't really know what to do. We don't seem to have any way in ourselves to escape these overwhelming circumstances. Do they tend to make us angry or bitter to withdraw? Perhaps when we get trouble in bunches it wakes us up to seek the Lord. It's how we we're all going to face tribulation and difficulty, but how does trouble in your life affect you? Is it an impetus to soul searching? Do we start to examine our lives? It's written in Hebrews 9:27, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. The fact is Every day we live, we have choices, and and the choices we make matter in the light of eternity. And it's good for us to consider how we're living, how trouble affects us, and that every day is a gift from God, and God should receive the praise for it, no matter how much time we have left. So let's thank Him. Dear Father in Heaven, thank You that You give us such promises, a life, that is worth living despite troubles and difficulties and thank you that you redeem those trials of this life to draw us closer to you that when times are good we we can just forget about all you've done we stop being as thankful as we should be we stop praising you like we should and we we don't pray as we ought to but Lord in these troubling times there are so many ways that you draw us to yourself pain suffering, sorrow, grief, confusion, all these, Lord, can be leveraged to draw us nearer to you. And thank you, Lord, that you delight to hear us, that we don't bore you or tire you with our requests, with our weakness or our feebleness. Lord, we ask that we would be filled with your spirit today and understand your word, that we'd be able to apply this profitably to our hearts, and may it be fruitful, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah 38 starting in verse 1. It says, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight and Hezekiah wept bitterly. This happened chronologically before the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. Uh, It's like we, we heard big picture of how God dealt with the siege at Jerusalem and how 20 years later the king of Assyria was killed in the temple while he was worshiping his God. And here we have a little backstory of what had happened just prior to that. And we know that Hezekiah was 39 years old at the time because in 2 Kings 18.2, it says he began to reign when he was 25 years old. In 2 Chronicles 29, it says he reigned for 29 years in total. If we add together the 15 years that God gave him after this period, he would have lived 54 years. So do the maths, 39 at this time. Now, I've never had this happen to me, but being told you're going to die, he didn't say, oh, you have two weeks to live. He says, set your house in order, you're going to die and not live. It was imminent, it was going to happen, and Hezekiah believed the word of Isaiah. I think it'd be difficult whether a doctor or a prophet of God tells you, you're going to die. You don't know how that feels until it actually happens, and it begins to sink in, the gravity of the situation, that life on earth, And the things you love, they're going to be gone. Things are going to be different. Set your house in order, he was told. And it's a common thing for us to be so caught up in life, we don't make arrangements for death. I expect there's a lot of us here today that don't have a living will or a a trust in place. And this revelation of Hezekiah can be a, a reminder to us that we only have a short season to live on this earth and we should make preparations for our passing for our imminent departure it's true as a believer this life is not all there is but we ought to set have our houses in order let's say it wasn't welcome news that isaiah had to give or that hezekiah received but it was gracious of god to let him know the truth if i could know in advance The day of my death, I think it would be useful. And and we could go back and forth why it would or why it wouldn't be useful. But the fact is, God decided to tell him, This is going to happen. You are going to die and not live. And he he turned to God in prayer. And he cried out to God. He said he wept bitterly. And he asked God to remember him. He said, Remember me, Lord. I've been faithful and loyal to you. Bultima wrote, We come across similar pleas again and again in the prayers of God's children of old. The Psalms abound with them, but we do not find them in the New Testament. The church bases its pleas on Christ's righteousness. And that to say, we need to remember that Hezekiah was living under the old covenant, the covenant of law. The saints of old did not have the same assurances that we have in the illumination and the fulfillments contained in the New Testament. They didn't have that. We have a new covenant that's based upon better promises. God gave commands under the law. Just if you could, for a second, eliminate everything but the first five books of the Bible and just think about those. How much promise of eternal life do you think is there? Comforts, assurances, descriptions of heaven, something that's going to happen after this life. It was very much, this is what you should do, And these are the blessings if you do them. If you don't do these things, well, then these curses are going to come upon you. And there was a lot of repetition along those lines. So God gave the law. People obeyed the law. There was blessing. Not talking about eternal blessing, talking about temporal blessing, blessing now. And then if there was, uh, if you were disobedient to God's word, there would be curses that God promised. So, therefore, there was this correlation. If you were Uh, having on hard times it was seen as well you haven't been faithful to the law there's a reason why there's a curse in your life you're under judgment it was assumed you were in sin very little in the old testament about what happens after the death of the body okay so i'll just leave that there if we only possess the old testament We would not know much about Sheol or the grave beyond that it's called Sheol or the grave. (laughs) There's virtually nothing about eternal life and the promises. But Jesus has ushered in salvation. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, it says of God, who has called us, saved us, excuse me, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So eternal life and life and immortality, that came through the gospel. That was illuminated through Jesus. They didn't know that in the Old Testament. It wasn't clear. It was murky. There was no nothing you could put your stamp on and say, I'm going to cling to this concerning eternity, it wasn't there because it hadn't been fulfilled through Christ. So I present to you that saying you're saved in an Old Testament sense has a very different feeling or connotation than saved under the new covenant because salvation was from your enemies. It was on the earth. But for a Christian, we know that we've been saved from death, saved from hell, saved from life apart from God. Verse four. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. Hezekiah believes the word, that he is going to die. He cries out to God. And then God sends another message by the hand of Isaiah. And he says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Isn't that lovely? God heard him. He saw how he was sorrowful. And on his bed, Hezekiah has an audience with the Most High God. Last week we read about how he went to the the house of the Lord and he spread out the letters before the Lord. Uh, But here he just is in his bedroom and he faces the wall and he prays and God hears him and answers him. Now Hezekiah's prayer, there's no requests there, is there? Except, remember me. Remember that I've been loyal to you. He didn't ask for prolonging of his life. There's no mention of him asking for deliverance from the Assyrian siege. There's no prayer that he would defend the city. Yet God answered it in those three ways. He's heard his prayer. He saw his tears and he gave them this awesome answer. What confidence we have in God to do right and good things, wondrous things beyond what we even dare to ask. Have you ever Almost dared not to pray a prayer. Like just, oh, it's a big ask. Not that God can't do it, but oh, I may be overstepping my bounds here and praying for this thing. Well, we don't have to feel that way. In fact, we need to believe that God's going to answer our prayer beyond what we ask. Even when we ask the crazy thing, the thing that seems huge and impossible, God says, oh, that, and I can do more still. And I will. Not because you're the king, not because you've been loyal to me, not because of anything besides I'm good and I love you. So it's not the words we say. It's not our position. It's because God's good and He, He hears our prayers. He sees our tears. And He said, I'll even give you a sign. I'll give you a sign to confirm the truth that I'm gonna save. He said, I will make that sundial go back 10 degrees. Now, Before clocks, which moved mechanically, like this one, sundials were among the earliest scientific instruments and used the movement of the sun to tell the time of day. What was the longest day of the year, the shortest day of the the year? They began around 3500 B.C., developed in Egypt, Babylon. And this might surprise you. It wasn't until the 1800s that sundials began to be replaced by mechanical clocks in mass. In the 1700s and 1800s, they actually used sundials to correct mechanical clocks. So it wasn't that long ago where people actually had sundials and they used them commonly. I was thinking about the different advances like when the spring was invented. That just revolutionized mechanisms and, and the pendulum and the weights and all these little mechanical things. Now all the discoveries seem to be medical or with technology, but the technology back then was it was still developing. I, I'm pretty shocked that sundials were still they make them just for fun now, but in the eighteen hundreds, that was the way you told time. Now if you turn in your Bibles to Two Kings twenty, Starting in verse 8, we have a parallel account of this same passage that gives us a little bit more insight into this particular sign, that Hezekiah actually had a choice of what sign God would do. 2 Kings chapter 20, starting in verse 8. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of of the Lord the third day. Then Isaiah said, This is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go backward ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. No, let the shadow go backward ten degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. There are many forms of sundials. There were some that was just a straight rod, others with an angle. They were divided into days, and this one was in degrees. It was a particular one, the sundial of Ahaz. And he said, choose, should it go forward or backward, go down or backward? And he says, I'll have it go back. It's easy for us to just wait, and it'll go in advance, but to make it go back, now that would be an act of God. And so God did that. Since it's a miraculous event performed by God, thankfully, I don't have to explain how he did it. You know, did the whole world stop? Did the sun actually move? Was it just on the sundial itself? God doesn't need to give us explanations of the things he does. God caused the sun to stand still for a day when Joshua fought uh, the Amorites in the valley of Ahalon in Joshua 10. He doesn't explain to us scientifically how he spoke the world into existence because frankly, science can't explain it's limited to, to prove or to show the power of God. We can understand, therefore, because of science, when something is impossible and God does the impossible. So, His power exceeds explanation. The point is that God hears prayers, He does the impossible, and He gives us signs to confirm His word. And God delights to give believers signs. It's throughout in the Old and the New Testament. Jesus gave countless signs of his divinity, his power and deliverance. God's is seen in both the Old and New Testament. God will provide the trusting seeker confirmation of his word. He will guide us. Think of Gideon. He gave Gideon many different signs. He said, this will be a sign to you if... uh, you know, and Gideon actually put that before the Lord. Hey, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then I'll know that I'm supposed to go. Or then, hey, Lord, please don't be upset, but if the, the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, or vice versa. Um, God's not interested in entertaining unbelievers or rewarding unbelief with a sign. Like, God, I don't believe you, so do a sign so I'll believe. No, that's not the way it works. The way it works is, If we believe God and we ask for him to confirm his word, he will. Either through the word, through something someone says, through some sort of confirmation where it connects the points and you say, wow, God is speaking to me. This is true. Think of Jesus. He didn't do any miracle before unbelieving Herod, nor could he do great miracles in his hometown because of unbelief. We're called to seek God, to place our faith in him, not based upon a miracle that he's done. There's nothing wrong with asking God for a miracle or a sign, but we should examine our motives to see if we are asking from a position of faith, like, Lord, if you show me, I'm going through with it. Not, if you do a sign, I'll believe. If you could turn to Matthew 12, 38, we see the scribes and the Pharisees who did not believe in Jesus, they wanted a sign. Everyone's interested to see the latest wild thing. There's still illusionists and magicians that have quite, quite a following. I'm sure, miracle workers would too. Matthew 12, 38. These scribes, man, they get me. They're funny. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. At least they're straightforward. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus pointed to his eventual death and resurrection as the sign. He says, you you want to see a sign from me? Well, the sign of the prophet Jonah will be your sign. They believed that Jonah had been swallowed by the great fish and regurgitated up three days later. But he says, I am going to be three days in the heart of the earth. I'll be raised from the dead. We'll see if you believe me then. Not all of them did, even though he did rise from the dead, as he said. And he said, the men of Nineveh, they condemn you because a greater than Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh listened to Jonah. They repented in sackcloth and ashes at the word of Jonah. And yet I'm speaking to you and you want me to do a sign for you so you'll believe. Jonah didn't do a sign, did he? He just said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And they they believed him and I am greater than Jonah. Hezekiah, he believed God, he prayed, and God offered to provide this sign. Verse 9, back in Isaiah 38. This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I have considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. After he had been healed, Hezekiah writes of his experience. It was a painful time, yet God used it to realign his perspective, to humble him. And sometimes it's the hardest times where we draw closest to the Lord. And he lamented his imminent death. He was, he felt like he was being cut down in the prime of life. He's like, ah, I feel like I'm being robbed of my future. 39 years old. And without the promises of the New Testament, his future was uncertain. All he knew is that he was going to be deprived from his his people, his children, his land, from God, as far as he knew. He felt he he was being robbed of an opportunity to worship and to praise God, to give him glory. To the Jewish understanding, Sheol was just a place where the dead went. And I pulled out a quote from the Jewish encyclopedia. It's not a Christian source. Let me preface by saying that. But there are 15 Old Testament references where they get this idea. So listen to what it says. This is part of a quote. It says, The dead merely exist without knowledge or feeling. Science reigns supreme, and oblivion is the lot of them that enter therein. Hence it is also known as Duma, the abode of silence. And there God is not praised. Sleep is their usual lot. Sheol is a horrible, dreary, dark, disorderly land, yet it is a pointed house for all the living. So that was the Jewish perspective of Sheol. This is where he thinks he's going. So he's not very happy about it. <laughs> if, that was, if that's what we're looking forward to when you die, well, I think we we'll would all be crying <laughs> thinking about that. Think about what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 9.10. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave, Sheol, where you're going. So there's nothing to do there. There's no work. There's no wisdom. There's no knowledge in the grave. This is Solomon. Then David, in Psalm 30, verse 9, he says, What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit, Sheol? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? So there was this Old Testament understanding that you were going to the grave. You wouldn't know God. You wouldn't be able to praise Him. You were really cut off in a sense. It was something to lament, not to say, I'm ready. Hezekiah's life, this sudden end of his life, he was filled with grief. He says, My, my life's been taken like a shepherd's tent. You know, it's easy to take down a tent. It's just being taken away. And yet, as a man who knew God, he knew God's power and he recognized God's control over it all. And he was wrestling with this. He's like, Lord, I've been praising you. I've been loyal to you. And yet, you're allowing me to die before my time. You're letting me die young, in the prime of my life. How could you allow this to happen? What can I say against you? You're the God that I love. You're the God that I I trust in. And yet... My life is ending quickly and I'm not, I don't, I don't like it. It's a grief to me. He says he cuts me off. Talking of God. From day until night, you make an end of me. I have considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. He found himself dying. He found himself suffering and unable to cope, struggling. Can true followers of God find themselves hurting and confused and And angry, grieving over things that God has allowed? Hezekiah. Of course. It seems that he wasn't sleeping well. He says, I have considered until morning. All night, he's thinking about what was said by the prophet. His physical discomfort and the fact that he was going to die and not live. It weighed heavily upon him. He says, you're breaking me apart. Now God is gracious and good to bring such pains upon us so we'll come to our end in brokenness so our souls might be restored so we can have fellowship with God once again. Is God good to break a bone? Well, this life has a way of breaking us apart. And when those bones don't get reset properly, a good doctor sometimes has to break that bone so it'll mend properly. And David, he said, cause my broken, he says, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. It seems almost, it doesn't quite add up in the human sense. But know that when God breaks a bone, he's able to heal it and make it stronger. There is healing and restoration in God, but none apart from Him. He continues, verse 14, Like a crane or a swallow, so I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me, and He Himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live. He knew his life and times were in the hands of God. Who was he to question God? If you say you trust God, can we question the righteousness or the wisdom of his judgments? He compares his prayerful sobs to a a bird like a crane or a swallow or a dove, we have this crested pigeon that hangs out on our pagola outside. And it's very common. It, it, when it gets in one of its moods or whatever, it's like, whoo, whoo, constantly for a while. And he's like, when I'm sobbing, I'm like, just like a bird, just sobbing again and again and again. It's a good thing we can come to a joyful resignation of what God's allowed, recognizing that he's in control, that he has allowed something. And that only comes through faith in the word and in and through the power of the spirit. We can't come to that place apart from God. Think about Peter. He had vainly fished all night long. At the command of Jesus, he was reluctant to lower the net. It's in the middle of the day. It's not a good time for fishing. Probably not a good place for fishing where they were. He explains to Jesus what Jesus already knew. He says, we've been toiling all night and caught nothing. And Jesus is like, "Uh uh-huh. He's like, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Just because you're asking me, I wouldn't do it for anyone else. But for you, I will let down the net. We may not understand God's decisions. We may not be able to explain the wisdom of his judgments. But we can trust in God based upon his goodness, his loving character towards us, that he has our ultimate good in mind with even pain that he allows in our lives. So when trials overwhelm you like a flood, do they seem to cut you off from God or do they drive you to God? And that's a good thing for us to consider. Hezekiah, he's just in a world of hurt. He's trying to manage his his weakened army before the colossal foe in Assyria. He's laid low with a grave illness. Then Isaiah comes and says, you're going to die. You're not going to live. I mean, when it rains, it pours. Testing times indeed. What could he say to God at this point? Know this. The God that can bring you down, he can also raise you up. And he knew this. He had confidence that God would do this, that he would be raised up. And so he was delighted. Hey, I have another 15 years. God's given me 15 years. I'm going to live that, those rest of my 15 years rejoicing in you and praising you and living in the way that pleases you. So the God who gives us life, he's able to restore our life. The life that you feel has been taken from you or that you've been cut off He's the restorer. And the only way that you can be restored is if for a season you've lost something. Think about Job. How he lost his his children. He lost his health. He lost the support of his wife for a while. The support of his friends. All his stuff. And that's really on the small side. Even though he lost a lot, God restored him. So he he came back and went beyond where he had been before for people loved him and supported him. So Isaiah 38:17. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Sometimes when we pray, we want to pray, we want to really pray in the right way so we can have the right response. Right? He doesn't hide the fact that he prayed with selfish motives here. He says, indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. It wasn't because, oh God, you're getting robbed of glory if I die. He's like, Lord, I don't want to die (laughs) for me. I, I am in upheaval over this. I'm struggling to cope. I can't cope. Yet the fact his motives were selfish, God lovingly delivered his soul from the pit of corruption. He cast all his sins behind his back. And sometimes we think, our prayers will have a better chance of being answered if, if we have somebody who's like, uh, you know, closer to God or in a particular role. If they pray, it'll have more weight. Or if I say the right words, it'll matter more. Or if uh, if my heart is like my motives are totally pure before I pray, then God will have to answer. Or if by the how much I've suffered, God's going to feel sorry for me. It's by God's grace he answers our prayers. Even he, he answers prayers and gives us, gives us things we don't even ask for. So what, what a wondrous thing we have in prayer that when we seek the Lord, we just cry out to him. He didn't have much to say to God when he looked to the wall. He was crying so much. But God heard him and God answered him and he gave him abundance. When he, he was looking at death in the face and God's like, hey, life, restoration, hope, a future. We don't have to make excuses for God or feel the necessity why something has happened. Try to try to get people to see the good in something. Like that, that's not our responsibility to make excuses for God or to explain why. Because God answers those why questions with who he is. He answers those questions with himself. He doesn't give explanations that we would love to hear. Like, Lord, why did that child die? Why did that happen? Why am I struggling? Why am I? Why is my life about to be over? God answers those with himself. And when we look to him, we see that I'm actually asking the wrong question. Knowing that God has our ultimate good in mind, it's an anchor for our souls in the midst of painful tragedy. And it's our response to pain and suffering that shows us if we love and trust God or not. Again, King Hezekiah's focus was life on earth. In his mind, there was no benefit for him to go to Sheol. Hezekiah didn't know about the passage in the New Testament that speaks of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, where you have the the area of torment, the great divide and the area in Abraham's bosom of comfort and peace. He didn't know that. There was clearly knowledge because they, the man who was in torment remembered his brothers and Lazarus, he was being comforted. And so there was, there was knowledge and understanding in the grave. But Hezekiah knew, the living man, he has the capacity to praise God. He has the ability to go to the temple. He can teach his children about God. So it's all upside for me to be here and to go into your, your house and to sing my compositions of praise to you. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to spend my life. So what's our response to what God has given us today? Think about the promises that he's given Christians, people who are born again. What does salvation mean to you? In those testaments of old, where they the, the, the saints of old, where they said, Lord, save me. Sometimes it was save me from the Philistines. Sometimes it was save me from physical death. What do you ask to be saved from today? Do you need salvation? Well, know that God is able to save you He is able to restore you. I believe that Hezekiah praised God when he saw that sundial go backwards 10 degrees. He believed when the word came that said, you're going to die. And then he believed when he saw the sign that the sundial retreated 10 degrees and he praised God, even though he was in a sickbed for three more days. His tears fell like rain, but God poured out salvation and deliverance for him. When it rains, it pours in a different way. Verse 21. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil, and he shall recover. And Hezekiah had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? So we've kind of explained verse 22 already with that other passage. Now, was the God who made the sundial return 10 degrees able to heal Hezekiah instantly? Of course. There's no medicinal properties in the figs that were applied as a plaster over the boil. That must have been pretty ugly. Um, I'm not really sure what that, I'd, I'd be curious to see. If you, if, if someone had it on their phone and said, hey, you want to check out this boil? I'd be like, yeah, let's see it. But, uh, anyway, so they put some figs over it. It's not because This is a good treatment to do. It was a step of faith in obedience to God, even when it didn't make sense, because if figs are the cure for deadly boils, well, then they would have employed it at some other point. Divine assistance was required for this recovery. Both in the Old and New Testament, faith demonstrated through obedience is a common theme in conjunction with God's miracles. Think of the widow woman. Elijah said, I know you only have enough oil and flour for you and your child, and you're going to die in the famine, but make me a cake first. Feed me with your food, even though it's the end. I know it's the end. Feed me. (laughs) Feed me, and God's going to supply, and God did. He said, hear the word of the Lord. After she made the cake, he says, that flour is not going to run out, and that oil is not going to run out until the famine is over. You're going to live. Naaman, he was told to go to the Jordan and dip seven times in the river and be healed of his leprosy. Now, can dipping in the Jordan River or any river cleanse you of leprosy? No. But it was that God said, do this, and this will be the response. Jesus, he used his saliva to mix up a bit of mud, and he smeared it over a blind guy's eyes, and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, this specific place. Go wash off in that pool, and you'll be able to see. So the man did, and he came away seeing. wasn't because the Pool of Siloam had some special healing properties to it. So there's two points to be made here. Healing, deliverance, and salvation, those are God's works, but we must exercise faith to receive it. We have to obey him. Take that first step, even if it doesn't make sense. If you say, put some figs on that boil... Day one, very little improvement. Day two, man, is it going to happen? And day three, wow, healing. The second is not all miracles occur immediately. We'd like God to restore us instantly. We would love to just have, like, okay, all the bad feelings are gone, all that this addiction that's, that's controlled my life. I, I never want to even be tempted by those things anymore. But know that restoration takes time. God's doing a work. He's doing a miracle. And not to put a time restraint on his power to do it in the way that he wants to. When you think about the day of your death, it's something we don't think about very often. At least I don't. I don't think about what it's gonna, how it's going to be. But we can spend a lot of our time in a fantasy world. I had a friend who would always ask me, he's like, okay, Ben, th- if the lotto was over 200 million, he'd start playing it and he'd say, so, if you won the lotto, what would you do? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, nothing. And he's like, no, no, seriously, Ben, what would you do? And I'm like, ah, okay. I would, uh, buy, I would fix my driveway. Ben, fix your driveway. I mean, you'd be buying a new house, right? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd get a new, new tires on my car, but, <laughs> He just he he would spend so much time thinking about what do you do if he won and he he didn't really understand that hey, I don't play the lottery and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time dreaming about what would happen if I won. All the billboards say what if it was you, you know, like oh, oh what if it was me and you start thinking about it. We can spend hours fantasizing about Uh, possible future relationships or working out how we can resolve dramas or wishing things were different in our lives but far better than fantasy it's good for us to consider who god is and what he has already done for us the blessings he has already poured out upon us rather than focusing on what's not and what we wish was happening and its pain and sickness and uncertainty and attacks and when we feel besieged that can drive us to increased fellowship with God and sometimes it takes that we'd like to think that hey i love god and i i can i pray to god but there was a fervency that it was only death staring death in the face that that brought that to hezekiah we should bring all our cares before the Lord, committing them into his hands. And he may tell us to do something that doesn't make sense, like making a, a salve out of figs to put on a boil. We're like, come on, what is that going to do? But we, if we're going to ask and trust God, we need to do the thing he's telling us to do. Now, if you could turn as we close to 2 Chronicles 32, verse 24 we see a little follow-up on how Hezekiah lived out the remainder of his 15 years. When he received the word of his healing, he's like, Oh Lord, I'm going to be in the temple singing my songs to you continually. I'm going to be glorifying you. I'm going to tell my children of your works. But listen to this. It's a bit sobering, but it's the truth, and we need the truth. The truth not just about Hezekiah, but the truth about us. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. See the connection. He prayed to God, and God spoke to him. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. God looked favorably upon Hezekiah, gave him 15 more years. He saved him. But it says clearly that Hezekiah did not repay or give God a fitting return for those 15 years. Next week we'll read about Hezekiah's dealings with ambassadors from Babylon. The reality is, Hezekiah found humility easy on his deathbed, but difficult in a time of prosperity and good health. And that is true for everyone. In the time of difficulty, humility comes easily. But when things are going well and our health is strong and things are looking up, we tend to be lifted up with pride. When God rains His grace and His salvation upon us, may His love pour freely from us. It's like, well, let's. Uh, I, I started out this passage with Hebrews nine twenty seven, but I want to read verse twenty eight because we we can quote that first part where it says it's appointed men once to die, but after this to judgment. It's not a full stop. It continues. It says. In Hebrews nine twenty seven and 28, And as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. We know as born-again Christians that we will be in the presence of the Lord when these bodies go the way of the earth. And God has given us a greater salvation than just extending our life 15 years here. But he's given us his presence now and eternity in a place of light and rejoicing and praise. And we have assurance of this through God's word. Those who eagerly wait for Jesus, they will receive his salvation. Nothing murky about that. Nothing drab or dreary there. No Sheol picture. It's one of eternal glory and rejoicing. He is coming soon. Someday we will see him. And for some of us, it feels like that day is, it will never come. Like, ah, it's taking forever. But we can count on God keeping his word. He healed Hezekiah. He gave him a sign. He's given us a sign in raising Jesus from the dead. And the same way that Jesus ascended to heaven, he is going to return. So when God rains blessings upon you, which he has done, regardless of your physical health now, regardless of how you feel, does thanksgiving and praise pour from you back to God? He's reigned. Does it pour from you his love, his grace? May it be the way in our lives. Lord, thank you that you have blessed us so richly. You've given us the illumination of your word. You've made things so clear that were once very ambiguous. And thank you that you have cast out all fear and given us a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder that we are, our days on life of life are short on earth. And help us to treasure and to walk uprightly with the time that we have remaining. Lord, may we not be as Hezekiah who... When we, he was given new life, he did not repay according to the grace you showed him. May we choose, Lord, by your strength and by your, by your grace to, to give you a fitting return on the blessings you poured out on us. May we not look at our troubles, Lord, and say, when it rains, it pours, feeling sorry for ourselves, but to say, when it rains, when you have rained such blessing upon us, your love and your thanks and glory pours from our lives. We love you, Father. Thank you again for Jesus and your spirit. And we ask that you would minister to our hearts and that we would take our eyes off of the troubles and the difficulties, our own suffering as well, and fix it upon you with thanksgiving and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.